Saturday Night Live, The Things We Did Last Summer special, originally aired on October 28, 1978. Hello and welcome to SN Hell. My name is Keith. With me as always, my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hi, Keith. This is our last stop before we jump into season four. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's pretty wild. The things we did last summer, this was a special. It actually aired the first week Saturday Night Live was off. Um, so we are kind of looking at this one out of out of sequence because the special talks a lot about the uh, the summer before. I figured we could do it as a little segue into the new season. Sounds great. Makes sense. And I uh, I always like these little uh, special features. And we've got a bunch of mini episodes up there if you're interested in checking them out. And I actually reviewed American Hot Wax and then Matt and I also reviewed Animal House. Yeah, about that American hot wax. I was like, I, I feel weird in a way that I that I that I didn't just do it. But then I'm also like, wow, I really probably wouldn't have liked it. It really probably just would have been a drain on me. Yeah. So uh, I felt quite conflicted. And there's so many movies that these folks are in that aren't of the style of the show. In order for us to get together for two hours to review, like something Robert Downey Jr. does in the 80s just doesn't make sense. But if I have an hour to do it, I'll do it, right? Sure. There's a lot of stuff I wanted to cover because the business side of Saturday Night Live is all over the place in in that summer break. There's a lot of moving pieces. So I thought maybe I could run through some stuff that's going on to see what they really were doing last summer, if that makes sense to you, my friend. Oh, it makes lots of sense. And I love it. I love the I love the shoot stuff, the BTS. (laughs) So. And I try to avoid some of it because, I mean, we're not here to like, I don't know, we do make references and, and, and even the odd joke every now and then. But if the show becomes, you know, what were the personal lives of the folks, we're definitely going to get sidetracked. But also we only have certain sources, like some people have not said anything, you know, and some have said a lot and blah, blah, blah. Some are not here to speak, you know. Touche. Any gossip rag. It's a public service. So I just want to give my sources. These are also a lot of awesome books that are out there on the subject. Tom Davis's book, 39 Years of Short-Term Memory Loss. Great memoir written not too long before he passed away. Lorraine Newman's May You Live in Interesting Times. That's over on Audible. I've listened to it a number of times. It's fantastic. And it's so awesome. Lorraine is narrating it. Alan Zweibel's Laugh Lines, another good book. And then uh, Doug Hill and Jeff Weingrad, Saturday Night Live, a backstage history of SNL, or sorry, Saturday Night, a backstage history of SNL. And of course, James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales, Live from New York book. That one we probably talk about all the time. That's the only one I have. I recommend them all if you have Audible, if you're an Audible user. I think they're all Are they all on Audible? Uh, Yes, I believe so. Oh, no, sorry. Not the Doug Hill, uh, Jeff Weingrad one, the uh, backstage history, but that's uh, that I have the Kindle version. Oh, and I guess I listened to Jay Moore's book. Does that count? <laughs> well, yeah, it certainly does. Not for this. It was, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> There's a few names that are going to keep popping up uh, going forward that are kind of new to the story. Fred Silverman. Is that a name that rings a bell to you, Matt? Absolutely rings a bell. Yes. But if yeah. I, please, no follow up questions. Uh, Fred Silverman was hired to replace Herb Schlosser as the president of NBC. Silverman is a titan, but we'll talk about him in a second. Schlosser was a big supporter of the show from the very beginning. He's the one that's sort of the network side of creating it, I guess. Uh, him and Ebersol, Dick Ebersol. And Schlosser and Lorne Michaels got along really well. Fred Silverman was brought in because NBC, and this is still hard for me to believe, uh, NBC's ratings were in the toilet. It was a distant third. What's their hot shows? 
Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Quincy, Chips, and the Rockford Files. So they, you know, the network is brutal. Right, riding on the shoulders of James Garner, Jack Klugman, and Eric Estrada. Ouch. Yeah. Big ouch. They did have the movies that were very popular. Like we've talked about the TV movies. They were huge, but it wasn't. Sometimes those movies were, I don't like the other stuff that's on, right? Silverman kicked ass over at CBS. He was kind of the executive there when like Norman Lear's stuff came in. He also brought the game shows to CBS and started things like Price is Right and Match Game. He, he revitalized uh, Price is Right. And, Love uh, me a game show. And Freddy from Scooby-Doo is named after him. Oh, that's fun. I didn't know that. Sometimes the actual numbers don't matter as much as the demographics do. The um, demos, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it was Fred Silverman that was responsible for the 1971 Rural Purge on CBS that boost, booted shows off like, you know, Beverly Hills Billies, Green Acres, uh, Mayberry RFD. Yeah, get rid of those because the, the demos are are not favorable, I guess. And and I, I think as time goes on, it's, it's, that's proving to be less and less of a thing, but certainly was at that point in time. He went over to ABC in 1975. Got Three's Company going, Love Boat, Charlie's Angels. He brought uh, Hanna-Barbera to the network. He revamped and uh, revitalized the soap opera genre. He was the executive behind Roots. So, I mean, this is a this is a power broker in... Holy you know, the, shit, what a yeah. resume. I know, eh? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of his shows featured, like, sexy women prominently. I mean, that's where, like, um, Jiggle TV, the joke comes up that, uh, you know, buxom women... We're, we're all over the place wearing tank tops and short shorts. And we actually see that parodied in season four, uh, Battle of the Network TNAs. Silverman at NBC was, um, uh, at the time, it was seen as a complete failure. I don't know if that's totally fair all these years later, because seeing what he released, like Cheers, Hill Street Blues, Facts of Life, St. Elsewhere, all were approved under him. He brought David Letterman to NBC in the first place. The news division exploded. The next generation of leaders came in under Silverman. I think he did a lot of good when you look at what he accomplished while he was there. But at the time, it was seen as as he tanked. He didn't get the hat trick he wanted. But as far as Lauren Michaels and the folks at SNL were concerned, this was a new guy. It wasn't Herb Schlosser who pretty much let, uh, I don't want to say let them get away with everything, but who was very hands off with the show in a lot of ways and just kind of let Lauren run it. Yeah, that's what you want. Saturday Night Live really starts taking shots at Fred Silverman right away. Um, the Frank Zappa episode has a famous thing where John Belushi starts playing Fred Silverman. Were they, were they jumping a gun? No, I, I wouldn't say they were because he starts trying to do things soon as he arrives in May. They do shoot some pretty nasty. Over the next four years, he takes a lot of hits from them. And there's a great line. Uh, we'll cover it later on. But at first, it's John Belushi playing Silverman. And there's a lot of jokes at his uh, expense. And years later, there's a very famous bit that comes from Al Franken. And Fred Silverman said, I didn't mind John Belushi making fun of me because he's talented. (laughs) (laughs) While the network is in a complete tailspin and, and, and just doing completely shitty, he's got this wonderful little show that's getting high ratings in a weird time slot that the kids all like called Saturday Night Live. And as one place uh, put it, I think it might have been the uh, backstage history book. Um, Silverman saw Saturday Night Live as 
a potential source to help him bring prime time back to where it where it should have been. Silverman didn't really get the show, and uh, and late night was not really a big concern of his. And and I can understand that if you're being killed in prime time, it doesn't matter how good Carson is doing, right? Yeah, no, it's totally irrelevant. You gotta you gotta hit the big spots. You gotta have a strong core. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't look like he'd enjoy the show. No. One of his solutions to getting primetime back up was to put on a few primetime specials, the best of from the first few seasons, which did extremely well. He was sort of appropriating Saturday Night Live strengths and using it, which was brilliant maneuver, really. It also fixes up some of the Mandela effect for folks who remember Bill Murray and Chevy Chase being on the show at the same time. Yeah, they're they're getting highlight reels in primetime. So exactly. Just remember yeah. that as the show. That's right. He also offered Gilda Radner her own primetime variety show. They got into chats about that. I remember reading that. Uh, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Oh, I, yeah, maybe it was in the Love Gilda. No, it was probably in the book. It was probably it's it's a few places. Yeah. He even like they even come up with the catchphrase, you know, Wednesday night at nine is Gilda time. So NBC was ready to announce that Gilda was getting her own show in January of 79. When Lorne turned the show down on behalf of Gilda, they were both at the meeting, but as they say in the uh, backstage history book, Lorne did all the talking. Gilda sat there looking at the floor. Uh, I, I need to. I want to talk about that. It's later reported that Gilda broke down to somebody saying she was too overwhelmed at the process of trying to do two shows at once. Didn't want to turn down her own show. Um, and by her own show, she would have owned half of it, like Lauren, I think, owned the other half. And But she said she didn't want to break up the community. There's a lot to unpack about Gilda here. I think there's uh, there's an undying loyalty to, to Lauren. There's also, um, I don't want to get too psychological here, but there's a father figure type thing going on here. And Gilda like lost her father at a young age, and she was always clinging to men. Um, there's a lot, I think, psychologically going on here that I don't know. I don't want to speculate that she just didn't stand up to Lorne or she didn't stand up to Silverman. But uh, there's something weird from the Gilda perspective. What strikes me as a what a, what a it's kind of a sad story. Gosh, why did she always have a rough time? She sure did. Seems like, a, I, I don't know, in, like in hindsight, and it's easy for us to sit here and look back. But I mean... Once you see her post Saturday Night Live career, you might have thought this might have she might have just went ahead and did this. And then, it's, you know, the post Saturday Night Live career, it's it's there's sometimes you have to read between the lines. But Gene Wilder was next. You know, he kind of I don't want to say controlled her, but there are stories out there of him not being particularly welcoming to Gilda's pre-existing friends. And maybe that's for good reason. There was a lot of train wrecks come out of that community. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, touche. Could have um, been overly cautious. Whatever, we weren't there. It, I mean, it all tracks. You know, mm-hmm. It's all so easily applicable to what we already... Yeah, just last night I watched it finally. Vice, the dark side of comedy, is uh, the last episode of season two is, is about Gilda. Oh, how is it? It's great. Yeah, it's great. Rosie Schuster's there talking. So oh. someone who was on the ground. And I think Rosie Schuster's really become like she's one of the ones that I, I find it gives a very unfiltered look at the show. It's not filtered through protecting myself or anything. You know, I, I find Rosie Schuster is one of the best, quote unquote, elder statesmen for, for, for shooting straight. That's good to know. Yeah, check it out for sure. I like those shows. Yeah, yeah. So by December of 79, Gilda has turned down her show for whatever reason. 
Um, it was done at the last minute in uh, in response to that. Fred Silverman was absolutely pissed at Lauren Michaels because Gilda may have been the one to save primetime. She was, quote unquote, dangled in front of him and then snatched away at the last minute. It's tough to hear her treated like such a commodity between these fellas and not really have a sense of what she wanted or what was going on with her. But And the other element, too, that I didn't mention in here, and I should have said it earlier, is that she was looking at another few years on television and Hollywood was calling. So there's just another couple names that I'm just going to throw out here uh, because they do come into play later in our in our timeline, much later. Um, 1977, Brandon Tartikoff was brought over by Dick Ebersol. Ebersol was the VP at the time of a late night programming. Um, and he also has some claim to the creation of SNL. He brought over uh, Tartikoff, who was like this wonderkind of television. Um, and Ebersol himself was fired by Silverman not too long later. So you must know the name Tartikoff, right? Matt? I sure do know the oh, name yeah. Tartikoff. There's a dynamo of TV. And a future host. He will host the show. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's Yes. He was battling cancer. And uh, him and Ebersol were friends for a long time. Tartikoff was quite the ham. Ebersol said a good way to make his buddy feel better. He's he's definitely one of those people, though. But uh, <laughs> if I recall, he's actually quite good. Um, I'm looking forward what, to that. What decade is that? 80s, mid 80s. Well, so we've got Tartikoff, we've got Ebersol. But another name that's in the show, working on the show as talent coordinator is Gene Domanian, who's been there since halfway through season one. Not much about Gene right now, but it's just uh, she's in the house, you know. I recognize that name for sure, too. Yes, uh, she's Lauren's successor for a brief period. Uh, That's probably why I listened to that history. So that's the business end, but there's stuff going on with the cast. So first off, July, we've talked about it. Animal House, huge success. John Belushi is suddenly a huge star. He's on the cover of magazines. Number one movie in the country. That that was was that an unexpected big hit? Belushi was one of the few that really believed it was going to be huge. There's a story about Donald Sutherland not taking the box office percentage, you know, stuff like that. At the same time, he and Dan Aykroyd are working a lot on Blues Brothers related stuff, including opening for Steve Martin for nine nights at the Universal Amphitheater. And they recorded their album to come out in December. Blues Brothers is exploding and naturally it's already starting to cause some friction on the set of SNL. Belushi's focus is starting to drift away from the show. Aykroyd's to a certain degree, but uh, Belushi was more the creative force on that. And I remember, I, like even as a kid, I remember the, the retrospectives about the mania and all that. You know me, I, I just can't get into that business, but uh, I sure remember the nostalgic phenomenon of it. Also in July, Foul Play with Chevy Chase opened. Now, Chevy hasn't been on the show in a while, and the show, uh, the movie wasn't the success that Blues Brothers was, but it did extremely well, and that just furthers people's suspicion that maybe these SNL kids could do something uh, that might make us a little bit of money. Is it funny? Do you think I'd like it? I think we should watch it together. It's uh, Hitchcockian, but it's it's comic. Okay. Gilda Radner voiced a character in a cartoon called Witch's Night Out. Um, I also learned on the Vice documentary that uh, she was having a real rough go here with uh, the pressures on her. She's also, there's an eating disorder going on as well. Um, And she spent some time uh, in the hospital, uh, in the psychiatric hospital at this point in time, just to to get some help and to, to feel a little better. 
1978, you didn't publicize that. No, my goodness. That would be uh, outrageous. Yeah. The pressures of fame, people. It must have all seemed so sudden, right? It was so not long ago that they were like, when they went to that thing, uh, mm-hmm. um, and they were like, holy shit, we're actually like famous outside of the city and stuff. Bill Murray, working on Meatballs. We're going to watch that one together, too. Wait, I've never seen it. Lorraine had finished American Hot Wax. Uh, she's got some things in the hopper, but I think she also, the issue with Lorraine was that she missed Los Angeles. She was not a New York lover um, and was terribly homesick while she was working on the show. So um, she, I know she she traveled because it comes up in the uh, in the special we're about to cover. My point is, though, by the end of season four, everyone but Garrett had movies in pre-production. Even Jane? Jane's uh, Jane's movie is uh, How to Beat the High Cost of Living. Is it a comedy? Yeah, it is. Starring her, Susan St. James, and Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang, okay. Uh-huh. And Susan St. James and her later go on to do uh, Kate and Allie together. Of course. Yeah, Garrett has a bit part. And, you know, I, I was thinking about Garrett the other day. He goes on to be busier than any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. Like, really, when you think about all of Garrett's credits, like... He's probably had more work than all of them, Um, but he was, as we know, going through a rough time at at this, and it's going to kind of peak. The uh, Backstage History book does a great job of sort of talking about how Garrett had to watch Bill Murray come in and eclipse him. As we get a little later in our, our, you know, week-to-week coverage, it's apparent that there are some people that are sabotaging Garrett, undermine him. Like, it's been been something we've talked about throughout, but I think it gets mean-er before... He leaves. Not looking forward to that. You know, the numbers vary a little bit. Um, I don't want to take one. I don't want to take one source over another because I, I don't know which would be right. But by season four, the cast is making about $4,000 per show. Just actors. They do get a bump if they're writers. I don't know how the business end works, but some places say the cast were actually grossing around 200 K for the season. That's after rerun pays and that sort of stuff. Lauren was getting around 750 K. And the shows were were budgeted at around $400,000 an episode. All of those huge jumps from season one when it was all shoestring and the actors were getting about $750 each. I remember Franken and Davis were splitting. I think it was $375 each a week. Oh, that's tough. Yeah. Tough start. But hey, good for them. They they earned it. They're the, you know, it's yeah. the grind to put on these shows. They're, they're, some of them are literally killing themselves grinding this out week after week after week they're doing the work yeah they're doing the work they're yeah. they're chasing that dream and and really creating an icon of television that still follows you know their basic format right they set the template for sure yeah so the writers got a significant raise uh from what i can gather franken and davis actually got a huge raise and everyone else who writes got really pissed off favorite nations went in, went into a degree and the writers got the same raise that Franken and Davis got as well. NBC dumped some money into the 17th floor. SNL took over the vast majority of the 17th floor rather than just the chunk they had been using. Lauren gets his own bathroom. The offices now has showers and kitchenettes. My favorite bit about this season three to four negotiation was Ann Beats successfully negotiated a hospital bed to be put in her office. <laughs> You know I would be getting a hospital bed before a raise. I would. <laughs> <laughs> You'd never have to leave. Some of them practically live there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. 
The show staff had ballooned, and uh, some of the key players had assistants. Apparently, some of the assistants had assistants. And security people were now placed regularly to keep the press, fans, network, and just hangers-on away from the floor. Rockstar shit. Chevy's long gone. He's making movies. Michael O'Donoghue left at the end of season three, and he's working on what's supposed to be at this point a TV special called Mr. Mike's Mondo Video. Marilyn Miller, whose unique pieces, that's the lunch counter one, um, and such, uh, some of the best writing ever on the show, uh, had gone on to other projects. Gary Weiss uh, and Neil Levy, gone to Hollywood. Those that remain have huge raises, some of the biggest stars in TV. In Belushi's case, he has the number one movie and uh, about to have the number one album in the country, and he's on a really cool show. So I've been breaking down seasons one to four this way. Season one is like new new kids, new style. Are they going to make it? Season two is finding out that they are stars. Season three is basking in that stardom. And season four is the chaos of being pulled in all directions. It, it can produce some wild stuff. So yeah. I'm very interested to see how it plays out on screen in the yeah. comedy, in the sketches, because it has to. So throughout this year, Matt, I'm hoping you and I can watch Foul Play and uh, 1941 and Meatballs. I'm down. Now that we know what they really did last summer, let's find out what they decided to tell us they did last summer with the things we did last summer television special that aired in October of 78. So what the hell is this? The one we watched is the version from the DVD. It cuts out Jane's segment and a lot of music, proprietary music that was used. Jane's bit, uh, she did a segment from Memphis and Memphis was very warm um, and the city police and fire department were on strike. The National Guard had been called in and there were a bunch of people coming to Memphis to celebrate or perhaps mourn the one year anniversary of Elvis's death. It actually sounds like what would have been the best segment of the show. Yes. Yeah, so did they even shoot it? Like what happened? Oh, yeah, it was shot. We just don't see it on our version. Um, It was cut out uh, the DVD version. Why would they do that? What the fuck? I don't know. That, well, it was it was cut and re-aired a few times. So this is like an hour format. The original would have run the full 90 minutes. So, yeah, there's there's little bits cut out throughout as well. There is a full copy of it out there somewhere. Maybe we'll get to see Jane's segment somewhere down the line. I'm interested. But it sounds awesome. But I, apparently with all the stuff going on, Jane just kept commenting on how hot it was or how warm it was out and just ignored <laughs> it. <laughs> that is our type of comedy right there, right? Yeah. The whole thing was directed by Gary Weiss. A writer credit was given to Don Novello. I don't know why Novello only gets the writer credit. Um, apparently, there was a few other folks that uh, that helped out with this um, on the writing side, and a lot of stuff was actually done by the the, the, the performers themselves. I so, was going to say that the yeah. performers' fingerprints seem to be on the uh, couple of these, especially. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. The best part of this, and I'm, I'm going to let the I'm going to let the, the thousands in on something behind the show. Matt, how many times a year do we see each other in person? About three, maybe four? <laughs> yeah, about four would be a, a safe number. Yeah. Yeah. Once yeah, you get so into the uh, the fringe stuff, well, <laughs> we really that's our peak season, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So outside of September, I might see Matt maybe twice a year. I got to drop the DVD off to you the other day. So we, we, we actually got to see one another in person. It's true. Yeah, we go right to the show here. A really weird theme song sung by Bill Murray and Gilda Radner. It was quite silly. 
Um, and then we get some title cards of the, the, the cast. Well, and initially it feels to me to be a very low budget affair. Um, the DVD makers spent no money remastering this. This is cheap Canadian stuff. Uh, and I say Canadian with a, with a heart around it. Uh, not much money was spent on the production for this. <laughs> I fun song right away. Yeah, I loved it. It was almost uh, my my thought was that it was like public access TV retro vibe, uh, and it was such a cool introduction. It's like the most seventies sounding intro song I've ever heard. Like they just plugged it out on a little Casio. Well, I mean, when I first saw this, I, I hope you get the reference, but I was like, was this produced by CHCH in Hamilton? <laughs> yeah, I get the reference. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to uh, the first uh, one we're going to see is the Gilda Radner part. The first part shows a bunch of people lining up to get in somewhere in a New York City setting. Gilda says she, she enjoyed people asking questions about her and people just being curious. But then she said people started uh, calling all the time and then showing up at her house. It got really out of hand, and she just stopped enjoying it and started to hate the attention. So what she's decided to do was for a dollar, um, you can get a tour of her apartment, and she'll bring seven people in at once and take them around her apartment. So we see Gilda in an apartment, we assume it's hers, collecting money and welcoming people in. Once everybody's in the apartment, she runs up the stairs and uh, does a big entrance and slides partially down the rail. She said she's lived here for two years, but uh, the folks will only be there for about five minutes. She then invites them upstairs and talks about the stairs, saying that they were probably built when the apartment was built. She then uh, takes them to her exercise room. Uh, the people who used to live there left their gym equipment behind. She doesn't really know how to use it, but she tries. She then goes in her bedroom. She shows a baby crib, which is where she says she sleeps. She then shows a view out her window of a brick wall. We get some nice shots of the folks uh, reacting. She then shows the bathroom. It's just a small room with a toilet and a photo of King George. She then locks the door and uh, uses the washroom while people wait in the hall. In the kitchen, she shows a sponge, her fridge, some magnets, and some mustard that she uh, stores on the door of the shelves. Uh, she shows the butter setting. Now, I remember these butter settings uh, in the fridge where you could uh, sort of turn a switch and it would make your butter soft. It would keep the, the butter crisper, I guess, a certain temperature. She then takes everyone outside to a patio garden. She invites the folks to take a leaf as a souvenir from one of her trees. She shows a barbecue and then refers to the mustard that she stores in her fridge. She then takes folks up a ladder to the roof where there's this huge gymnasium with a basketball court. Um, it appears to be some sort of dome. She's asked how much it costs, and she said it costs about $250 a month to live there. They think that's a ripoff, but she says it's a bargain for New York City. Incidentally, the price inflation, that is uh, $1,214.31 a month for an apartment with a basketball court in New York City. Gilda then sinks a free throw. She shows where she keeps her animals. We then get a, a cut to a bunch of like Ibexes, I think, running through the Serengeti. She then takes into a room where there's tons of merchandise. There's a I Love Gilda shirt, some photos of Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, and a Gilda poster where she's sort of doing the Farrah Fawcett pose. She also has bags of the leaves and twigs from her backyard that you can purchase. She has one of them sort of old waiter uh, change counters on one of her belt. The visitors are happy and they buy a ton of merch. Gilda then escorts them out as another bunch are coming in. Matthew, how did you feel about this Gilda segment? I felt pretty good about it, Keith. I thought it was excellent and interesting television. To see Gilda, the, like the, this is obviously, I mean, we talked about it in like the first half there, 
what a uh, very real struggle she was having at the time. And so, you know, with all this in my mind, it's very, it had very real gritty 70s vibes to me. She was, she looked fascinating, kind of out of character. It looked, you know, there was clearly no effort in hair, makeup, anything like that. It's just, that's just what she looks like. And it was interesting to see her like that because usually you don't. Uh, her sliding into the banister was really funny when she was coming down the stairs. It, it struck me when she was talking to the people uh, what a natural performer she was. Apartments that have stairs, I noted, are really wild to me. I'm not yeah. used to apartments with uh, stairs. What a ridiculous apartment, which they'll, of course, uh, continue to poke fun at. <laughs> her hanging <laughs> off the equipment might have been my, my laugh of the... Uh, laugh of the segment when she lexed after uh hanging off it really felt unscripted when she was yeah. going through the fridge she's like look now oh, here's some prepared mustard <laughs> yeah i really liked the whole thing i thought it was a good spin on her feeling invaded in her private life really smart and well done well wait i can't i'd be remiss if i didn't note that she but she put the coin thing on to sell her merchandise. Mm. What a cackle. And she was selling charcoal burned in the presence of Steve Martin. <laughs> just brilliant. I thought it was awesome. I loved it. I was a little up and down with it. Some of it I really enjoyed. Some of it didn't. I didn't. I wish there were more reaction shots of the people that were there because they were just blown away. Because it was Gilda's twigs, they were fascinating. Yeah. You know? <laughs> She, she definitely did a great job taking them through and showing. And I, I don't imagine that was her apartment. I, I don't know for sure, but I, I something tells me it wasn't. Probably not. But yeah, it was it was a fairly good segment. I, I wasn't as big on it as you were. Um, I wrote at one point that this is definitely unscripted, but not in a good way. I then retracted that. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, uh, the stuff outside was funny too. I yeah, well, there, were, there were when they did the big circle around the table. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Our next segment, we follow uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. This is just basically clips from the uh, Blues Brothers concert shot uh, September 9th, 78, when they were opening for Steve Martin. So we we hear Hey Bartender, which we saw during the Steve Martin episode. And we get Rubber Biscuit, which is a uh, song originally by the Chips from 56. It's a nonsense song Dan sings lead on. Interesting take on the song, and it shows uh, Dan Aykroyd's technical ability. The original version of this also had uh, at least two more songs. Soul Man and The Something Blues were also there. Um, but I think there were more than just that. Uh, this is just basically a Blues Brothers concert. Both of their comic talents not really on display. This could have been two other fun segments if they weren't doing this Blues Brothers thing. And I thought we got one of Belushi's best cartwheels and one of Belushi's worst cartwheels on that uh, on that stage. <laughs> Matt, I can't imagine you're big on this one. No, uh, it was when you said when when you said the original version had like a few more songs. I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, dodge that one. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just not for me. And I thought it was a missed opportunity to do something cooler with the time, I guess. Like it didn't need to be a concert segment. It's, I think it was out of place with the rest of the program. Agreed. Yeah. We're now off to Bill Murray's segment. The title card reads Somewhere in Pennsylvania. Bill Murray is driving an old car. He calls his mother from a payphone and tells her he sold all his stuff and bought a car from a Shriner, is on his way to try his hand at professional baseball. She thinks it's a bad idea. He disagrees and insists that he has to try. He tells her to stay off the highways because he plans to be driving dangerously. Murray shows up at Olympic Stadium way over in Aberdeen, Washington. He has two baseball bats and a glove, and he runs into where a bunch of players 
the Gray Harbor loggers are practicing and they've been waiting for Bill. He meets the coach. He apologizes for being late. He says he got a bunch of tickets in Montana. They assign him to right field. And uh, members of the team keep telling jokes to him, and they keep telling him, despite the fact the jokes are quite bad, they say, you can use that on the show. Bill is trying to practice. Uh, People continue telling him jokes, including a Spanish-speaking outfielder. One week passes, and uh, what was originally here was a Rocky training montage, which was cut from our version. Bill is not at the game because his car is broken down, and he takes the car to a mechanic who keeps telling Bill a joke which slows down the process of fixing the car so Bill can get back in time to play the game. The mechanic is played by a character actor whose name I, I can't I can't remember, and I couldn't remember what I saw him in to find it, but he did a lot of sitcoms in the 70s and 80s. The game is happening at the same time. The coach is annoyed that Bill isn't there. The team is losing, and the crowd is getting pissed. Bill's car gets fixed, and he makes it in time to bat. He gets a hit into deep left field and starts a rally. And then he makes some catches and hits a home run, which leads his team to victory. Bill Murray then does the Gehrig-style luckiest man in the the world speech, um, but he changes it to the universe and then the United States. He says he now knows he can do it all. He loves baseball, but he has to go back to comedy. Yeah, Bill Murray quits comedy, sells all his possessions, goes and tries base, and uh, realizes comedy is where he really belongs. Matt, did you enjoy this one? No, I did not think this one was very good at all. I didn't think it was funny. It came off as really whiny and complainy, and I really didn't think there were any jokes in it. It was just a little bit about, you know, Bill Murray carries that first little bit with his charm. And I did like the weird, it started, felt like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when he was started, when he was driving in the woods <laughs> like that. Yeah, after his, you know, a little charming conversation with his mother, which was cute. Uh, that whole thing about the, you know, the people just saying, oh, yeah, this would be funny. Oh, yeah, you should use this on your show. Like, yeah, we get it. You're, you know, you're a famous comedian and I'm sure you're pestered by fans. I didn't like the tone or, or the mood of the, the sketch at all. It gave me bad vibes. I love this one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really funny premise. Uh, I, I loved his notion of selling everything after a year and a half on a show and going to try baseball. Um, I thought it was a good good time for his vamping and uh, i really enjoyed this now here's the fun part matt according to uh baseball record books at uh, baseballcube.com bill murray actually did play two games as a pinch hitter for the gray harbor loggers that summer what uh what what division is that is that like minor league league. uh yeah double a i think he hit twice and uh he got a base hit on one and uh he he's either struck out or didn't get a hit on the other, but he, this is actually recorded as uh, two professional baseball at bats. Pretty interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. I know he the guys on the, the guys on the team said he wasn't nearly up to par, but he took the practices very seriously and tried to be as good as he ca- could at the game. So I was, uh, I was happy to see that. That's pretty cool. And you know, it, I, I didn't, I missed the joke that he, that he was selling all his possessions, even though he's only been on the show for a year, probably yeah. not even making a lot of money. I missed that one. Very funny. He's, he's conquered comedy, right? <laughs> yeah. Put it in today's context. That would be like Sarah Sherman, who's on the show right now, saying I've conquered comedy. <laughs> Our next one is Garrett Morris. Uh, trigger warning, everyone. With a woman lying on his bed, Garrett says he's going to work. He's dressed like a jockey and he's going back to his old job. The girl thinks he's nuts, but Garrett says it's going to be fun and a summer vacation and he could use a couple extra bucks. 
So he gets on the subway and starts reading the paper. And I put that in there because that's the grimy subways I remember seeing on TV shows as a kid. That's old New York, right, Matt? Yeah, that's the uh, that's the the 42nd Street vibe that I uh, wish mm-hmm. I could time travel to. Yeah, it's gone now. So he shows up at his place of work. He greets a Mr. Garvey who asks if he's still singing with Harry Belafonte. And Garrett says he's not. He's got another job. He's off to work and he wants to go back and make a couple of uh, a couple extra bucks. We see that he's actually a model for lawn jockeys at a studio where they make lawn ornaments. We see artists painting sculptures of like live animals and live models. Garrett meets with an artist who he knew from before who says a lot of the old lawn jockeys are now white. Um, and because of racism, they've gone many different ways with the lawn jockey. And we see an, uh, an Arab person. Uh, Garrett wonders what the uh, fee is. The artist tells him it's four bucks. Um, so Garrett asks for the gig. He says he can get 12 done a day and walk out with 48 bucks. It's either a, a canned version or Garrett singing Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better. That's cut out from our version, which is fine because I wanted this to be as short as, as humanly possible. This was really bad. I mean, Garrett was all in for it on screen. At least he looked like he was doing his absolute best. But again, it's becoming our mantra. Garrett deserved better than this. This was uh, this was terrible. Yeah, hideous. Uh, I I didn't get it uh, half of the time. And when I did, I, I sure didn't like it. And yeah, I know he was trying to be funny with the, you know, the jockey shorts and stuff, but. I thought it was miserable comedy. Yeah, not uh, not acceptable, even then. Less said about that, the better, I suppose. Um, we now go to uh, Lorraine Newman. So a lot of this was, uh, a lot of Lorraine's story is is based on and greatly exaggerating a trip that she actually took to, to Tahiti. So uh, in this one, she's uh, Lorraine's in Tahiti with friends, including uh, Michael McManus, Peter Asher from Peter and Gordon, and uh, virtually unrecognizable to me anyway, Mackenzie Phillips. Um, after they all check in, we can see some stock footage of Island Girls dancing. Lorraine and her friend go to uh, their room where a porter tells them what the meals and bar hours are. We then cut to dinner and Lorraine is eating fish. And all the options for food are fish related and like fish covered with fish. Kind of reminding me of the, uh, the spam joke from uh, uh, Monty Python. All the conversation is about fish and sharks and stingrays and someone getting paralyzed by when they went uh, scuba diving and surfacing too quickly. Everything is a threat there. She's then asked to go scuba diving so she can see everything underwater. She reluctantly agrees to diving lessons. We then see her walking along a beach worrying about scuba diving and being underwater with all them threats. She talks back and forth to herself saying she's got to push herself. And then when she thinks of what they all said about the threat she decides not to go she tells her friends that her instructor got a cold and then they, they say well just come with us anyway and uh, she says she's also coming down with a cold so everyone goes back to lunch we see more girls dancing uh lorraine is a quick shot of lorraine being trapped by a giant centipede in her room um the maid tells her not to worry and and kills the centipede and it's quite bloody and gross she then recognizes a friend in the lobby who uh, named Paul Oberon, who was from high school, played by a young Paul Rubens. He doesn't recognize her. We also see some people turning into Nazis in a hallway. There's more fish at a table. A lot of quick cuts of suddenly there's Nazis at, a, at, at, at another table. 
Um, she just freaked out. Everything, the lights suddenly change. We get this red shot of Lorraine. Um, and then there's goldfish in the drinks. And it really goes all over the place. Very avant-garde. And then we uh, see Lorraine back in Los Angeles. She says Tahiti was fun. Happy to be back in L.A. She's talking to her friend who's behind a newspaper. The guy drops the newspaper and it's a different guy. One of the guys from, from Tahiti. What a weird piece, but I did enjoy it. You know I loved it. Uh, before I even look at my notes. Tell me what you liked about it, because I can't put my finger on it other than it just being weird for the sake of weird. This is like a Lucio Fulci movie. Like when he uh, he does he does movies like The Beyond was a big hit and uh, Zombie uh, was another uh, one that he did, House by the Seven. Anyway, like this early, late 70s disco Italian gore director. And his movies are just like nightmare escapes. And that's what this felt like to me that mm. her vacation was just an escalating nightmare. This was a short horror movie as far as I was concerned. Uh, Cause she's even wandering on the beach. She's like, you're supposed to have a good time on vacation, right? You're supposed to have fun on vacation. She knows something's wrong. She's like, why can't I have fun? Like other people, she starts having these weird nightmarish kind of, there was that shot of her like in perfect square frame. And then the other people in her party, were shot in this fisheye lens. It was really disorienting. And Nazis, come on. It, it just turns into a fever dream with the centipedes and all of the fish and her descending into this mania. It was exactly like one of these weird psychosexual Italian horror movies of the era. Weird piece, but I enjoyed it. I couldn't help but enjoy it. I mean, I love those kind of movies too. So it, it was easy for me to like that. Because I feel like they've seen those movies doing that. So in the original version, we have another Blues Brothers segment, <laughs> which is cut from ours. And, <laughs> and, uh, Jane in Memphis, focusing on how hot it is outside, despite all this crazy stuff going on. Interviews with elderly showgirls. Somebody dressed as the mayor, I think. Keeps asking people, like, what's up with this? And how's this going? And it's the one year anniversary of... Elvis's anniversary. So hopefully we can see the Jane bit somewhere down the line. I hope so, man. It sounds really funny. It really reads like, at least on paper, like the one we would enjoy the most. Mutual. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So Matt, if you were to pick a favorite of the segments tonight, um, you know, where are you going? Lorraine Newman's. Yeah, I'm torn yeah. between Lorraine's and Bill's, but they're so friggin' different that it's like, it's very much an apples and oranges. No, it's yeah, like an apples and bowling balls, you know? <laughs> this is a sort of their second TV special. The other one being New Orleans, which was all over the place. Uh, better product in the end? Yeah, I think so. Shame we didn't get to see Jane's segment because we're we're slightly shorthanded. But even the anticipation of it, and I, I didn't love that one. It was a mess. It was all over the place, and it was you know it was riding on energy more than jokes. And this was a little more yeah. focused. Yeah, I think I preferred the the Mardi Gras special. You know, there were elements of this that were a lot of fun. There was sort of a, a rushed, unfinished, pardon the term, but there was something very amateurish about this special that I that I didn't like. I think that's why I like it more. I think because I think yeah. it's, it, it's really lo-fi and clunky and mm-hmm. it, it really feels like they had no help doing it. You know, and that's a good point because that's precisely what we sometimes miss from, you know, seasons after season one of this show yeah like even as i mentioned that bill bill murray's had this uh 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe, which is on, on something else that was made for dirt money. So, uh, and, yeah. and me liking both of these things, of course, I'm going to like that aesthetic in general. So that's it until season four starts, Matt. We're coming back next week. You know who starts off the season? Uh, I don't. Host and musical guest, the Rolling Stones. Oh, okay. Quite a get for 78, eh? That's a huge get. Yeah, that's very exciting. That's season premiere stuff. Matt, I am so excited. Thank you so much for all these in between season three and four episodes. Well, Matt, thank you so much, buddy. Uh, Great chatting tonight. And we'll be back in about a week with uh, season four. And until then, Matt and I will just be hanging out talking about last summer here in SN Hell.